If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you, so you can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Greetings, one and all. This is the Soundtrack Alley, the podcast. This week, I've got special guest Eric Woods from Cinematic Sound Radio, and we'll be discussing Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So I hope you enjoy! Welcome to the show. I am your host, Randy Andrews, and I have special guest Eric Woods with me today. Hello, thanks for having me. Yes, you're welcome. Um, It's a pleasure to have you. I've been really um, enjoying being able to do this podcast, and uh, this week we're discussing Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And of course, the film is directed by Steven Spielberg and the music is done by John Williams and which he did an amazing job with I've got some facts about the movie I'd like to share um, Eric if you want to pop in from here to there to uh, share a couple facts that you've learned or um, that you found really interesting you know go sure. ahead and share and uh, okay. we can continue from there Um, So one of the interesting facts that I found with the beginning of the film, I didn't realize that there were real air traffic controllers that were used in the opening sequence. That, like, the synthesizer technician performer was an actual engineer sent by ARP Instruments to install the synthesizer equipment which is the ARP 2500 on the set. And Steven Spielberg watched this expert playing with the equipment and immediately he cast him for the role. And the name of that engineer was Philip Dodds. And he's even mentioned in the credits. So that was, that was kind of interesting because it's like you wonder sometimes how many real real professionals they get for certain movies. Yeah, I think when you're thinking of uh, trying to make this seem authentic 
as if it was actually happening in real life. And, you know, Spielberg obviously is going for, for, for the best of the best. And, you know, for some of the most complex scenes in this film, and I'm not talking about the special effects, mm-hmm. I'm talking about those scenes where you have overlapping dialogue. It's something that Steven Spielberg does, and he does extremely well. If you can think about the, uh, uh, there's a, a dialogue sequence in Jaws where they're on the barge. It's kind of one single shot, and there's some overlapping dialogue. And uh, I'm pretty sure that the argument between uh, the mayor, Roy Scheider, and, and Richard Dreyfus in Jaws as well, kind of has a lot of that overlapping dialogue, which makes it feel real. Mm-hmm. And so when you're coming to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, you're not making a B science fiction film. What yeah. Spielberg's trying to do is to instill as much realism as possible. And when I was watching this film again a couple of days ago, like you said, the air traffic control sequence at the beginning of the movie when they're talking about the airplanes and the, the close encounter that they have and whether they want to report a UFO. Exactly. I'm watching that and I'm like, wow, are these real operators? And I think only real operators could act and talk that way. And on top of that, if you look at the scene, uh, there's a lot of overlapping dialogue, which would happen in an air traffic control center. Yeah. And in order to get that realism... You know, you have to employ the right people who who say these things hundreds of times a day. So I really like how authentic that was. And then even at the end of the movie, again, I'm not sure who was. I mean, I know one of the uh, premier, I guess, UFO or extraterrestrial science scientists who was actually in the movie. Mm-hmm. But just everything felt like it was like they could have just been talking mumbo jumbo. But exactly, it felt like. Okay, that was the equipment that they were supposed to use. Those are that's the technology, that's the terminology that they're supposed to use. So I really appreciate those fine details. I'm I'm wondering again how much of that was written in Spielberg's script, or whether it was just you know just a note like you know tech talk, and then he got somebody to come in and, and fill those lines in, or there maybe there's some ad lib or whatnot. But again, Spielberg in, in that part of his career again. Even even later in his career, when you think about Saving Private Ryan and going for realism and authenticity and making sure that everything is right, he's doing it early on in his career, mm-hmm. and this is only his uh, third feature film, and it's uh, it's extraordinary just to to watch him uh, work, especially at a young age, and doing it better than 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 the people that came before him and, and and have come afterwards as well. He's an extraordinary director. He does a fabulous job with his direction, his camera movements, and, and everything. Yeah, in is in the script, the dialogue is just it's it's perfect in this movie. Yeah, it's it's really well done. Some of the research I looked up was that he actually did get like some UFO experts, so to speak, um, into the movie, and they he cast a few of them. I mean, you had mentioned a little bit about that, and uh, I found that really interesting. And then some of the facts that I learned was that the whole idea of Close Encounters was from an experience that Steven Spielberg's or Steven Spielberg had as a child that without any advance warning his parents had rushed the children into their car at night drove to where many others were gathered somewhere and watched a meteor shower when Richard Dreyfus was really, he was interested in the idea behind Close Encounters. 
he heard Steven Spielberg talking about them on the set of Jaws. And so he heard about the casting. And so he wanted to be able to find a way that he could get into the movie. I found that really interesting. Yeah, that meteor shower um, actually inspired him at first to uh, complete his first full-length science fiction feature film called Firelight. Oh, okay. And if you, um, I've seen sequences from that movie, and if you you see some of those scenes, you're like, wow, he's taken scenes right out of that film and incorporated them into Close Encounters, and at times almost shot for shot. Mm -hmm. So he's had this idea in his head, like you said, since that meteor shower, and what a great story that is. I think it's just fantastic that that's, that's where the inspiration for such yeah. a great film came from. Exactly. And it's just a wonderful kind of childlike feeling that you get. And uh, and I think we can all relate to that. Um, and But I just think it's fantastic that it was, it was at such an early age that that sort of thing inspired him. He made a movie already as a kid and then just thought so fondly of that that he needed to remake that into a quote-unquote real movie. Yeah, exactly. And that was so confident in his skills when he was a teenager that he was able to take certain segments and scenes from that film and place them into his big budget spe uh, spectacle. So it is a fantastic story, and it's uh, again just it's just interesting how inspiration inspiration strikes and hits you. You just kind of never know when that's going to happen. Yeah, and the the crazy thing was was that. Steven Spielberg kind of wanted to keep everything kind of under wraps and keep the whole filming in secret. I found that really interesting that at one point Steven Spielberg himself couldn't get on the, the lot because he forgot his ID card right. and security wouldn't let him on. And it just, it's amazing that, you know, he tried to do so much to make this film kind of he tried to make it seem like a, a somewhat documentary in a way uh even though it was science fiction and everything but uh he he used so many elements of real life and even with the airplanes that they were actual w real world war ii airplanes um the calendars inside the planes they had you know, these month, full month calendars, and they had a logo for the Security National Bank, and it didn't exist in 1945. So, Security National issued a 1973 calendar that corresponded to the months that were involved with the actual movie. And I thought that was unique because. You know, here they're taking this real, real thing that actually happened and that these planes, they did disappear and no one was ever able to find the actual Lost Flight 19 and that it had just disappeared. They weren't really sure where that it had come from. Yeah, it's a, it's a great storytelling device and, and what a striking opening scene that is. Because you, you, you're kind of, you're expecting something more alien and more science fiction-y, mm -hmm. for lack of a better word, and, you, and you're, you're left with this t five to ten minute 
sequence all out in the kind of the Mexican desert. Mm -hmm. And you're wondering, what in the world does this have to do with anything? Yeah. And it's, it's what's so great about it is that the mo I think the scene then cuts to a shot of, and forgive me, I, I forgot the, uh, the translator's name, who's the cartographer oh, as well. Yes. I think the last shot is after the talking to that old man about seeing um, the sun come to life or, or whatever, uh, the cartographer uh, kind of looks up into the sky. And then you're like, ah, well, there's the connection. And then I, I'm pretty sure the, the, the shot then cuts to a nighttime shot in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's just the stars, and uh, I just think it's just it's just it's just wonderful storytelling, wonderful editing, and it just kind of gets you into it. But it's also you're you're questioning everything that you're seeing because you're wondering what in the world does this have to do about anything, and it 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 leaves you hanging right to the end as well. Yeah, and you almost forget about those pilots until you see them come off the ship at the end of the film. And you're like, all right, there's the connection. Yeah. And uh, I think that's absolutely just superb storytelling upon, on Spielberg's part. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought it was really interesting. You know, some of the, the things that were even relevant during the same year, like one of the scenes, um, Ronnie, the character Ronnie, uh, I think it's, uh, well, it's Richard Dreyfus, his character. Uh, he pulls out a newspaper and he's looking on that article about UFO sightings mm -hmm. and the night after Roy's first glance of the UFO there's an article on Star Wars episode 4 A New Hope that it oh, appears really? it appears on I the did, other I missed side that. I missed that that's actually really funny yeah yeah it appears on the other side of the UFO UFO article and I was like see that's just that's very relevant it's like it was in the theaters probably at the same time that they were film or you know almost done filming this movie and uh well, they were made they were made around the same time so yeah the, the film george lucas and steven spielberg were looking were working on star wars and in, in close encounters <laughs> pretty much simultaneously they yeah knew, i mean spielberg obviously knew about star wars um but um maybe it was just an ad cross pollinated there yeah i thought that was just unique because it's like mm -hmm. yeah it's very relevant to the time it was you know it's, well, it's also r2d2 is on one of the ufos oh so. yeah yeah he's like yeah, underneath one of them it's, it's so funny yeah it's it's really neat <laughs> and uh, yeah just how they had made that up and everything and even some of the actors, like, well, take, for instance, um, Carrie Guffrey, who is the kid. Uh, Barry. I think yep. it's, his name's Barry, right? Yep. Um, and Steven Spielberg was talking about his performances, that they were so good that they only had to take one or two takes for him mm -hmm. to get it right. They called him One Take Carrie... Yeah. Um, and even Steven Spielberg had a t-shirt printed up for him with that phrase on it. I thought it was interesting that Stanley Kubrick, he was even so impressed by Cary Guffrey's performance that he wanted him as the role of Danny Torrance in The Shining. Mm. Like in Close Encounters, you see Barry and he's looking at the UFOs and um, he says toys, you know, toys. Um, he looks out, spots the UFOs, and Steven Spielberg had actually pulled out a toy car from behind the camera 
to cause Barry's unexpected one-time reaction for yes. that. And so oh. he was able to just, you know, do it at a moment's notice, and he was able to get these expressions out of a child that they never were experimenting with that before. Maybe they didn't have much experience with children, and Steven Spielberg, he, he used that to help him really get a, a genuine feeling from the child actor. Yeah, it's he's he's so good with kids. He did the, a very similar thing uh, on E.T., where uh, Elliot is um, kind of pointing his fingers or, or moving his hands and, and doing various uh, faces, and Spielberg is off camera doing exactly those things to um, uh, to Elliot. I forgot the actor's name. Um, mm-hmm. But and that's that's sort of the same thing that he was doing uh, with with Carrie here, especially in the in, in the scene the in the abduction scene, in the kitchen, and in order for him to get uh, a surprise reaction and something that seemed scary to a three year old at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, behind the camera, and Spielberg is just a genius at this, and he's done this all the time. You just let the camera roll. Yeah, you know, Carrie would hit his hit his mark. And he had, if I'm not mistaken, uh, someone in a clown suit. Yes, clown and suit. And then also on the other side of Spielberg in a monkey suit or a yep, gorilla, gorilla suit or something yeah. to that yep. effect. Yep. And I think they were all covered. And then they would reveal themselves one at a time, and you and you could see it in the movie. He, he's he's Carrie is uh, startled, mm-hmm. and then again he the smiles. gorilla is. Uh, is revealed and you get the same thing but in order for him to then get that that smile uh i think the person in the gorilla suit takes the mask off yeah and then he has this wonderful smile about it and it's all so genuine and that's why maybe the first or second takes are only used because you try that trick again you're never going to get the no. same spontaneous reaction out of a child yeah I mean, you got to season after the be... over and over again. Yeah, and yeah. that's just the genius of Spielberg. Spielberg will just let the camera roll, and and he will direct. And and if he can find something, even just a second that is just a piece of gold, or just a diamond in the rough, there, he's going to use it. Mm-hmm. And and especially with kids, he's so good, so good with kids. And he like it's it's like an ET where he had to film that that film in sequence. Mm-hmm. So when the kids said goodbye to E.T. at the end of that movie, they were saying goodbye to E.T. for the last time, and every single tear was absolutely genuine. So, again, another testament to, to Spielberg's brilliance as, yeah. a, as a storyteller and a director. And, and you're right, that this whole him working with kids, and he's done throughout his career, he's, he's absolutely fantastic. He's fantastic with children. Yeah, he really is. He... he really knows how to get the right reactions at the right time for these children to act and to actually uh, react properly. Right. So, uh, I, I mean, we had just, you know, we had talked about the little UFO miniatures, you know, the R2-D2 mm-hmm. that um, was in the, the spaceship and everything, and uh, the filming that Steven Spielberg took about, like, the the mothership that he took about looking 
like it was like a live action scene even though it was very dark you know in the scene we had talked previous to making this episode about how some filming would be done differently from other parts of the film like you know not necessarily close encounters but some some scenes in a movie might be filmed later and then uh they film the ending or something uh at the be- at the beginning of filming sure or something yep. i found that like the last scene that was filmed for the movie close encounters was actually the opening scene in the desert right so it's like he was able to blend it really well too i mean it it, it fit really well to where you know they could have this relevant piece of filmmaking and still have it fit together to where everything just blends really well yeah you really got to know the story that you're telling and since you know spielberg wrote this and and again had already previously filmed this when he was a kid you know he knew what he was doing what also though is is interesting to note is that he really wasn't happy with the original version of the movie no and 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 some of the shots and and this and that and he tinkered he tinkered quite a bit to almost george lucas proportions yeah you know he i i I don't know how many other special editions were made back in the 1970s and 80s of films but you might want to coin that special edition uh, phrase and, and give it to Spielberg because what did he make oh, two versions of this movie yeah um, once in I think 1970 no 1980 and then 1983 yeah. was another version or something to that effect mm-hmm. I could I, I don't know like there's a collector's edition or there's a special edition yeah there were two longer, editions that that he made i mean i think i watched the um let's see direct it was a director's cut special edition um dvd i've rented it from the library so uh it was really well done and they had extra scenes added to make it seem like a more complete movie yeah, I think he ran out of time. He wanted to release this a year later than what it when it was released. So in order for him to kind of finish it the way that he wanted to, he actually had to agree to do a scene that I don't think he initially wanted. And I think it was the interior of the mothership mm-hmm. that was put into the special edition. And then eventually, later on, he took that out but kept everything else that he filmed in his special edition. So... It's 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 really interesting to see how uh, I guess unhappy he was with the original release, yeah. even though mm-hmm. it's utterly brilliant. Oh yeah, and it really didn't need anything else. Um, but you know, it's funny to see that he wasn't happy with. It. And I mean, you know, most directors, anybody, any artist anyone uh, along those lines they're never happy and they're never no. their creations are never finished but for someone to tinker with a movie that is just so good <laughs> yeah so perfect that he was obsessed he was absolutely obsessed so yeah well as i had talked with tim benson about um, my episode of dune um we had both talked about how 
David Lynch was very unhappy with the movie that he made. And it's like, well, yeah. <laughs> but um, he what he never went back and, you know, came out with a special edition or anything. And he didn't even change the formatting of the film. So, right. I mean, at least with Steven Spielberg, he took the time to go back and to re-edit and bring out certain things that you wouldn't think that wouldn't blend but it blended very nicely yeah um, no it's a very personal film I, I i don't think david lynch considers dune to be one of his uh personal no <laughs> personal movies no that he cl- holds close to his heart so. yeah i would agree um one of the the things that i found when i was watching the movie and they were the police were chasing after the three spaceships along the mountain mountain road or i guess the hill road because it didn't seem like there were real mountains there right but uh the one policeman he just kept going off the rail and he just landed onto the ground because he thought that it was a vehicle and it was really the spaceship the stunt man that was doing that scene uh, the stunt called for him to skid around the turn, go through the fence and over an embankment, but he was traveling so fast that he missed the area that he was supposed to land on, and his la- his car landed too hard, and even though he was wearing a helmet, he still received head injuries, and okay. he was ho- he was hospitalized for several days after that. And so they couldn't use him for a little while for whatever reason for any other of the special uh, stunts that they were doing with maybe a stunt driver. And (laughs) I was like, oh my goodness, this guy actually got hurt. (laughs) That's right. But in the movie, it just looks so real. (laughs) And it was. You kind of question what happens, but then you realize, and I've watched the film uh, maybe a dozen times and I would never really pay attention to the dialogue that he says before he goes over the cliff. Cause I always wondered why in the world is this guy going off the cliff? And he says something like, you know, they're, they're really hugging the road. <laughs> and, and then of course it's, you see the three lights just kind of pass the camera and all of a sudden this cop car just takes off and you're like, Oh, I get it. He thought that was the road. Yeah. It was actually really well lit mm-hmm. uh, for a nighttime scene, but uh, I, I could totally get why he would, probably just be focusing on the lights and, and not the road itself. Um, but what a sequence that is. It's it's just so good. It is so, so good. Yeah. Um, even, even the special effects for the time were mm-hmm. just, just just wonderful. Everything just worked. Nothing felt fake or, or out of place. The, the, the special effects work was just outstanding in this movie. Yeah, and some of them were like, some of the scenes with the actual aliens in it. Uh, originally, they had wanted to make it all kind of blurry. You couldn't quite make them out. Right. And I don't remember if it was a production designer or... Uh, it's not in my notes, but uh, I read it and one of the guys that was doing the film part of the 
filming, he wanted to make sure that it was kind of blurry because they're in suits, you know? They're these little girls that are in suits, and if they saw it just clear-cut, you could tell that it was suits, you know? Like, you know, costumes and things like that. And when the one of the producers saw it after they had said, oh, this isn't going to work. You need to take out that fade and that fog or whatever. Uh, then they looked at it again and they were like, oh, put it back in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because then they realized the importance of making it not all clear for the aliens themselves. Another thing about the alien with the multiple arms, you know, they had that one alien that came out with the multiple arms. Oh, the real skinny one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the one that eventually did the signals. Yes. Um, I, I thought that was really interesting because they used the hand signals by classroom teachers to teach the solfege scale. I don't know Mm -hmm. if I'm saying that right. Uh, Yeah. But it it had to do with the first degree of a major scale that's always sung as Do. Mm -hmm. And the second as Re. And etc. etc. But um, in the movable Do, the given tune is therefore always So. And then... Uh, fa and the same syllables no matter what key it was so it was interesting that they actually used a real scale to use for those hand signals Mm -hmm. for getting say the the tones right for even communicating yeah one of the things was when they like some of the soundtrack facts i really liked about it was when the humans were actually communicating with the aliens they made their music with multiple computers and then you saw on their board or whatever they had the different colors representing and i guess steven spielberg's mother was a musician and his father was a computer scientist and so he didn't really think about this until it was pointed out to him by James Lipton. That was really interesting. It's like, yeah, I mean, you, your background is more music influenced than, than you thought. I always found it good that the John Williams score, even before it was edited, uh, Steven Spielberg made sure that the music would match the film. And they used it like reverse engineering for the film score process. I thought that was really amazing. It's interesting to 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 hear Spielberg and John Williams talk about essentially the five notes, which is your your hello mm-hmm. reading that Spielberg wanted, and the fact that John Williams himself, genius that he is. Uh, couldn't come up with the notes himself. Yeah. You know, they had to go into a, 
uh, it's either a computer or they enlisted a mathematician to figure out how many combinations of, of five notes there was going to be because I think they wanted seven at some point but Spielberg thought that was a little bit too musical and then um, you know anything shorter than five was just was just too short to be memorable so they needed a motif and and five seemed to be the number that they went for and then there were thousands of combinations that uh, eventually they came up with and they went through I think I don't I doubt they went through all of them but I think there was maybe a couple of hundred that they yeah they eventually whittled it down to yeah and then it, I just I just I what I would I'd love to have been the fly in the wall when they decided that you know the iconic five notes that you hear now are going to be the five notes that they're going to use and and just how much the film relies on those five notes and if they got those wrong mm-hmm. then the, you're screwed the, the the movie's over it doesn't yeah. work yeah and now you just look at the movie and you're like yeah that's that's the way it should have been it's yeah. only, it seems organic mm-hmm. rather than uh, mechanical or mathematical yeah it just seems like the perfect the perfect hello mm-hmm. um i i mean i guess you know for for a musical uh, alien being i guess and that's the way you're going to commute with communicate with them then you know it's music and light yeah there's no translation needed Mm-mm. and so yeah and, and and every time i i see the conversation segment in the movie it really puts a smile on my face because it, it, it's quite delightful to see them you know experimenting with humans. it well yeah the humans yeah you know singing out those notes on the synthesizer and just waiting for a response and you just kind of feel giddy about it especially when the the ship finally does respond with that those low bass notes to, to complete the sequence and blast the glass out of the, the high tower there it's uh it's absolutely fantastic it's fantastic filmmaking it's just it's just out of genius um from the minds of, of, of you know one genius williams another genius spielberg uh, it's just great to see that scene come together and it's 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 a combination of you know the the, the visuals and music it's great to see music play such an important role in a film like this mm-hmm. exactly one thing i was looking at with just the music that john williams does um, there were two points in the film where you get other music that essentially isn't really John Williams. The one, the music score coming from the television when Roy's kids are watching the Ten Commandments. Yeah. Uh, it was actually, I mean, yes, it was an original piece of music that John Williams created for the film called the 11th commandment that's interesting i never heard that before yeah yeah i found that really fascinating because it wasn't it wouldn't have been in the 10 commandments john williams created that individual piece of music for the film i thought that was just you know really brilliant on his part to come up with that and then, I don't know if you noticed it, but I definitely noticed it with the end of the of the film. How you get a version of "When You Wish Upon a Star" from Pinocchio? Yeah, it it you know over the years you hear the stories of it being Steven Spielberg's favorite song, 
and it becomes almost Roy's theme because mm-hmm. he loves Pinocchio and yeah. and and the way it, it it's just so perfect so perfect we see shooting stars in the mm-hmm. in the film you know the reason why we are watching this movie is because the, the you know the mysteries that are out there amongst the stars and 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 to hear that uh, that theme pop up as Again, I'm trying to think of it. It's, it's it's either as Roy is being selected by the aliens or is being surrounded by the aliens and, and working up his way yeah. up to the um, uh, the mothership platform. Mm-hmm. That the I'm... swell of wish when you wish upon a star is is just so perfectly inserted into into the score. And I know that was a personal uh, request made by Spielberg to get that piece in. Uh, one because it, it fits with the character, and two because it's uh, Steven Spielberg's uh, uh, favorite song. Mm, I didn't know that, and yes. I found it interesting too that there's a toy in the film, and I still can't place where this happens because there's a toy that can be hear, heard playing the "When You Wish Upon a Star" melody before Roy rips off the top of his sculpture. I just can't place in the film where that happened. Huh. I'll have to go back and watch it. I can't <laughs> yeah, I, I... And I have watched it twice recently, and I still couldn't find it. So maybe I'm sound, missing the sound something. The sound is there. The sound is there? Yeah, yeah. The There's a toy that's in the background that the melody of When You Wish Upon a Star is brought out that you hear it but i don't know it <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like okay well i'm gonna have to watch that again <laughs> yeah. um i found um one other being the comic nerd that i am uh i didn't know that marvel comics published an adaption of the film for their super special series but the artists were given very little visual references for it and so they weren't really able to uh, obtain likeness rights for Mm. the cast members so they had to kind of you know come up with their own thing for the characters so who knows what they actually look like and i'm sure somewhere you can actually find that comic on ebay or on some comic buying site but i thought that was kind of kind of unique like oh marvel comics had one and then one one other note that i noticed about this is uh it's in close encounters of the third kind is included as among the 1001 movies you must see before you die and it was it was a book edited by Steven Schneider, I think. Yeah, and so yeah, that was actually really interesting. I was like, oh, I didn't know there was even such a book. So uh, <laughs> I'm but, sure there's I'm sure there's many uh, books of along the same sort of uh, theme, but yeah, I mean, Close Encounters is a it's a bona fide classic. It's, it's a must see, you know. It, uh, totally, it's a must see. I, I I made sure my kids saw it, mm-hmm. and and they, you know what? When I was watching it uh, three or four days ago, 
you know, my kids were playing in and out of the house, and, you know, I just had some quiet time to myself, but when they would come back in, they would sit down, and they'd start watching it. They'd creep their way into the living room, and they <laughs> totally forgot about what they were doing, and and they started asking questions, and their eyes were fixated on, on the screen, and my son's 10, my daughter's 7, and they really really appreciated it they, mm-hmm. they, they were they were just enamored by it again they were they're asking questions to you know because they hadn't seen the whole thing and mm-hmm. you know so i was telling them you know major plot points and whatnot but you know for i think the last half an hour of that movie they didn't they didn't stop watching it um, <laughs> they watched it all the way and then you know when the credits began they're like hey that's it and i'm like yeah that's it that's all it is there's no real i mean there's no real bad guys even though the government tries to to, to cover um, <laughs> the, uh, the gas, the whole, yeah. yeah. But I mean, there's no real kind of, you know, good guys, bad guys. It just all kind of, you know, ends up on a on a happy note. Um, even though there are a lot of questions to be answered, mm-hmm. um, mainly do with the actions of certain characters in, in the, the film. film. Yeah, but, exactly. Um, you know, it, it's interesting to dissect this film after all these years and to see. You know the point of where Steven Spielberg was in his life, and and if he had, you know, made this movie now, it most definitely would have been different. Roy would have made a different choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the 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 family dynamic. Uh, yeah, all that's. The, you know, I, I watched that, and I think that's the only real weakness of this movie because I don't mm-hmm. necessarily think that you you needed it, or it just wasn't done properly. properly. And, and and we know that Spielberg comes from a broken home, mm-hmm. and. And, but and again, I'm not sure how much he kind of saw whether his parents were fighting like uh, Roy and, and his wife were in this movie. But um, it, for me, I mean, it kind of added to his 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 his, his um, him going absolutely nuts and just you know being kind of self-centered and self-focused and and just being so concerned about the visions rather than his family. Yeah. But I, I just never found that the the his wife was understanding of the situation and wanted to be around to, to help unless of course Roy and his wife were already, you know, having close problems to the end anyway. Yeah. And it, and it kind of looked like that the house was all kind of disheveled and in a mess and then things mm-hmm. were kind of going downhill anyway. Um, did we ever really know? Aspect... Sorry. I'm sorry. Did we ever really know what Roy's job really was? No, I, but he was just like a, you know, he, you know, he was on call. <laughs> you know, your, 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 your power goes out and Roy's sent out to, to make sure it, it, it's fixed. Um, maybe fixed power lines or God knows what. But maybe. I don't know. He got fired from that job. We know that. Yeah. He got fired and, and I honestly felt that the family was kind of, to coin a phrase, uh, a chick in the bucket bucket you know it's like it was inserted into the film to give him a feeling of knowing that he had a family but you didn't get really any uh resolution there like his family just up and left and you don't you don't really see that he even cares that his family he didn't. Left. He didn't, and that's of course based on what he did at the end of the movie, mm-hmm. which is why Steven Spielberg has said that if he had made this movie now, it would definitely be different. Because 
at the time he wasn't the father. He, uh, I don't think he was married at the time to Amy Irving. Mm-hmm. Maybe he was in a relationship, but you know, he's got kids. He's been in a, in a very long relationship, uh, marriage with, with Kate Capshaw. And if he had the opportunity to go into a, a spaceship, um, by himself and abandoned his family, mm-hmm. I'm sure his decision would be very much different than what he would have been, done back in 1976, 1977. Exactly. But I think the it just kind of showed Roy's obsession and how he was just going to see this to the end, no matter what. He was going to put himself in danger, even though the government had said that there was you know, a chemical spill and there's gas in the air. He didn't care. He was going mm-hmm. to get to this mountain and figure it out and he was going to sacrifice his family and he was going to sacrifice his life to get these answers um so you know i I guess it all makes sense in the end i just didn't kind of buy some of the things that were happening with him and his him him and his family and those were the least least interesting things about the movie but i think you needed I guess someone playing devil's advocate and yeah. not believing mm-hmm. the things that he was, um, you know, seeing, and even the 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 one very romantic scene, which was I guess supposed to be romantic, <laughs> uh, between him and his wife uh, out on the road, where she she just wants you know to kind of kiss him and hold him, and and what does he do? He looks up to the stars. Yeah. So it just shows that he's totally disinter- disinterested in her and anything else that revolves around his family. I, I think it's important to see that, but I just don't think he was executed. And it just seemed overly ridiculous. You yeah. Know, when he starts throwing all that stuff into his house. And <laughs> yeah. He have to build it in his home when he could have just taken all that stuff and built it outside. Yeah. God knows what, but maybe that's why he, you know, he was going insane. <laughs> he wasn't thinking straight. He's just, I built one model in my house. I got to build a bigger one in my house. So yeah. uh, again, and that's the one scene that just goes on forever. Mm-hmm. It goes on forever when he's, when he's, picking up chicken wire and yeah and everybody's chasing ducks and he's throwing stuff in the house <laughs> it, it, it just lasts way way too long exactly it's, it's it's the only thing that really bothers me about, about the movie because i think yeah. the rest of it is fine and and again it, at times just absolutely masterful and perfect but that's the oh, only yeah. one where it's just like wow it just kind of slows things down and you're like all right let's get to it so yeah it's like all right let's it. move that's along the only I have. <laughs> and that that's the same with me it's like uh, otherwise the film is really well put together and i i would again watch this movie anytime that i can because it's just a really well done film so yeah, and the ending is just so dazzling mm-hmm. I mean, you, you just it's a light show mm-hmm. it's like going out and watching fireworks at 10 o'clock at night on a holiday that's all it is mm-hmm. let's just take a look at the, the aliens and the, the all right that's it we got to see them and we can go home happy the, the, again like i said there's no there's no fight to the death there's mm-hmm. no there's the only suspense is you know where are these people where did not people where did the aliens come from what do they look like what do the spaceships look like and, and what's going to happen to Roy? that's basically it very very simple mm-hmm. and for the last 25 minutes that's all you Spielberg get has the ut- utmost trust in his audience that they're going to stick with it and watch this light show for 25 minutes, which is just absolutely glorious. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so good. Um, and so well worth it. And it's, it's a perfect ending. Absolutely yeah. perfect. So um, I've actually selected about four cues for playing on my show tonight. Um, the first I'd like to play is The Abduction of Barry. And uh, I found the scene in the movie to be very 
kind of terrifying in a way. Oh, for sure. Uh, and do you have anything that you'd like to add about this cue? Yeah, it's 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 really the only real. Hmm, maybe it's the second one, but I mean, as for the track itself, it's really the only real terrifying cue where Williams is kind of instilling this this terrifying emotion uh, musically uh, towards the aliens. I mean, there's a scene beforehand where, where Roy first encounters the aliens at the uh, the crossing, the train crossing. Mm-hmm. And it's just, a, it's a creepy, scary scene for sure. I mean, anybody that went through that would, would be shaking just like Roy was in that scene. But, but Spiel, sorry, uh, John Williams left that scene unscored until uh, Roy chases down the alien and then there's music added. But it's, it's a little bit more fun than uh, atonally creepy the way that the abduction of Barry is mm-hmm. and it's frightening and it and, and it's it it seems almost again as you're looking at it through a three-year-old's eyes um but even Barry, Barry's more fascinated about this mm-hmm. than scared although you kind of do see moments where he does seem a little bit jumpy but then he's as we mentioned earlier on the program he's He's kind of laughing at the situation as well because he's just so fascinated by what he sees. But Williams is playing it for full terror. Mm-hmm. Especially the though, the scene with when it shows you the chimney. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, it, and it's, it's really you know, terrifying. Spielberg is, is Spielberg's bringing in and in and out the the music. I mean, it's completely scored by Williams, but not the this cue is left uh, most of it's unused mm-hmm. in the movie. It does bring, begins with the the fantastic, really deep baritone throat singing when mm-hmm. Barry opens the door and that uh, that uh, orange light. light spills into the house. Well, yeah. Just an iconic shot. <laughs> and it's interesting that the cue begins with that throat singing and ends with throat singing as the aliens finally disappear. With him. <laughs> um, but it's mostly a, 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 an atonal colored piece very very uh, inspired by uh, George Leggetti mm-hmm. and uh, Christoph Penderecki and if you're unfamiliar with their work well then if you're familiar with The Shining you've heard their work in that film so very atonal creepy terrifying experimental type music again uh, stuff that you might have heard in The Exorcist so Williams is, is channeling those two composers and, and a few others as well um, and a few specific pieces by Ligeti and, and Pendereski as well. So if you go through their catalog, you'll, you'll hear where Williams got it from. But oh, okay. it's just, it's something that, you know, when Williams is, is, is kind of instilling terror in his film scores, that's where he goes. You sort of hear uh, similar devices in, in War of the Worlds. Mm. But it's just very, very, very creepy. Only The only time we really hear kind of horror-type music in this film when you know eventually we find out that these aliens are, are harmless they're they're friendly um so uh it's quite an interesting contrast um especially with the message that spielberg was trying to portray in this film but he needed a scene like this and it, it's just absolutely brilliantly put together and i think the the moments of silence actually works in favor 
of this scene rather than having it completely scored, although I'm sure it would work fantastically well with John Williams, you know, completely scoring the whole thing, which he does, but I do like those moments of silence and, and where the music is dialed in and out. So for mm-hmm. me, it, it, it really works. Yeah, I agree. So I'll play this now.
All right, so our next cue um, is called Night Siege, and I believe we had talked previously on Twitter about uh, that these two, that this piece was actually two pieces. Yeah, you're referring to the um, the original LP release, which mm-hmm. combined uh, two tracks called Trucking and Barnstorming, mm. which were later released on the expanded edition. But these two tracks made up the suite called Night Siege on the original release. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, trucking actually, interestingly enough, is a cue that wasn't even used in the movie at all. Okay. At all. And it and I've watched it. I'm trying to figure out where in the world this cue would fit. Um, I know it's one of the it's one of the action sequences, and I'm I'm really not sure. And I've never tried it, although I've had tried you know putting in uh, rejected cues in other films as well. But I've never tried to kind of sequence trucking uh, that cue into into the movie. So, um, but it uh, it it does. Yeah, it's actually one of the last action uh, set pieces in the score as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I really like though in is the utilization of what other film uh, music reviewers call the four-note obsession motif that is heard throughout the film. So anytime uh, Roy is obsessing about the aliens, sometimes you hear the mountain motif. Um, other times you hear kind of this, this four-note motif, which gets a fantastic, absolutely fantastic workout in trucking. And so in Night Siege, trucking plays in its entirety. Mm-hmm. And then I think about two and a half minutes uh, later, let me just check out the, yeah, about two minutes, sorry, two minutes later, the track segues into Barnstorming. Okay. And Barnstorming plays in its entirety, it's a four and a half minute cue as well. So trucking, if you have the expanded edition, is track 18, and Barnstorming is track 22, so there's three cues that actually happened in between these two tracks that Hmm. Williams combined on uh, on the original LP released in 1977. So barnstorming is, again, it starts off very suspenseful, mm-hmm. um, but then everything kind of explodes uh, when we see dozens and dozens of, of, of ships on screen as they appear from the yes. sky. It's just really, really gorgeous mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. And, and the lighting and the writing, color. Yeah, yeah. Williams is writing here. It's just, it's just dazzling. And, and it's kind of one part confusing because you're not really sure what's going to happen, but then all of a sudden, like I said, all the the, the ships enter the scene, and and Williams just kind of plays this kind of angelic, beautiful music over top of it all, because it is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, like the scene itself, it's just chock full of orchestral colors, and it seems like every facet of the orchestra was used in this piece and the tower theme um appears um and then as the smaller ships eventually disappear the music disappears as well and i don't know about you when you first saw this movie and i think even when i saw it three days ago it's like is that it yeah i mean that's all we're going to get to see of course we know the answer is no but just the way that everything kind of just fades out and then we hit more silence um, you're wondering what's going to happen next, but mm-hmm. just fantastic, fantastic scoring. One of the one of the key highlights in the score for me.
The next cue is, I mean, according to the score that I have, um, is rather short, but the scoring piece is so influential in the entire film. Uh, the cue called The Conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I really found it that, as we had mentioned before, that John Williams couldn't really come up with it. And so... I found one thing that when that melody plays as the mothership communicates with the scientist, it devolves into John Williams' uh, theme from Jaws. Yeah, it does. I found that really unique because I was like, isn't that Jaws? (laughs) And that I thought it was interesting, like you had mentioned, the different hundreds of different permutations that they tried to use to come up with the five notes. The main tuba player for the musical voice of the mothership, Steven Spielberg and John Williams, they chose that tuba as the voice of the mothership because of the difficulty of playing the instrument added a human characteristic to the aliens. I thought that was really unique. Yeah, it does, because when you first hear it, it, you're kind of wondering whether it's a process sound or whether it's a real instrument, especially when it's playing those those real low notes. But once you start having that conversation between the the oboe and the tuba, then it gets very, very, very musical. Mm -hmm. Um, And... And, and it's, it's not an easy it's not an easy instrument to play especially no. playing in those high registers the way that the tuba soloist had to play it so it's a very 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 difficult piece and the cue that you have again comes from the LP mm-hmm. and it's about two and a half minutes long but on the collector's edition mm. I need to get cue, that <laughs> the cue runs Q runs uh, four and a half minutes. Oh. And so what you hear on the expanded release uh, is the entire conversation, but music that you don't hear in the movie at all. Mm. Okay. And that happens sort of in the middle of the in the middle of the queue on the expanded edition. But it is uh, it's uh, four and a half well four thirteen. It's called Wild Sig- uh, Signals. It's mm. track 24. Okay. Edition. So you get everything that you hear on the LP plus some. And the tuba player and the oboe uh, soloist, they go absolutely crazy. <laughs> and uh, it's not something I listen to for enjoyment. I, I, yeah. Actually, when I'm listening to the score, it's something that I skip over. I find that it's it's a, it's a wonderful piece of uh, of music in the movie. It works for that scene, but it's it's not something that I find rather enjoyable. I, I really do appreciate the the effort and the, the the playing from the players and the composition itself. I mean, the, those first five notes are 
absolutely classic and even the sound and the use of the oboe uh for the the voice the human voice mm-hmm. is just it's just perfect um but i usually skip over it but it's uh yeah like you said it's it's, it's iconic. It, it's the key. It's the key to this score. Yep. And as much as they didn't want to find something that was quote unquote musical, the way then John Williams uses it later on in the score, um, especially near the finale and the end credits, it, it becomes musical. It just becomes uh, perfect and obvious. And, and it's just, it was always supposed to be there. Fantastic music. Yeah. So I'll play that now. So the final cue I'd like to play is called Resolution and End Credits. Now, this the version that I have is, like you said, probably from the original LP. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you have any notes or anything you'd like to add regarding this actual piece? Well, we, I think we talked earlier about it, the use of uh, When You Wish Upon a Star, and it, it, it finds its way into this queue, although, although I'm not 100% familiar with the LP presentation. I haven't listened to that in a really, really long time. Yeah. Um, I mean, the first time I it's, got this it's album real... actually was on, was on LP. My dad got it from, uh, from a, a garage, not a garage sale, flea market. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that was back in the 90s. So um, I did play it a lot, but... I've, I've always played the, the collector's edition, which uh, features the special edition uh, end credit suite, 
mm. which is uh, 12 and a half minutes long. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm definitely visitors. going to have to get that. Yeah, it's, and it's, it's <laughs> where it's, can it's I find great, it? Great cue. Sorry? Where can I find it? Is it difficult uh, to Arista find? Arista Records released it. I'm not sure whether it's still in print or not, but it's. Okay. Uh, uh, it's a it's 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 a really good album. Um, okay. You know, a few alternate cues. Not a lot of notes though. There's an interview with John Williams in the liner notes, but there's not a lot of information uh, about the the creation of it from let's say a technical side or from let's say a liner note writer. But you do get Williams uh, talking about it himself. So that that's, oh, that's quite cool. interesting. But you, but you don't get yeah. like a track by track uh, no. rundown, which yeah. I, I think would be interesting in this part to 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 really. Um, focus on the, the many different thematic ideas and it's uh the way it's all kind of meshed together and how it comes together at the end and again i would like to know exactly where trucking <laughs> is placed in the movie yeah. and what it was used for yeah because it's a that, like this is an extraordinary action cue as we already heard mm-hmm. um but there's you know there's the original version of the of the resolution and end title which you have on the lp but then on the special edition you got a 12 and a half minute cue mm-hmm. that is just gorgeous and williams doesn't write a lot of these long cues i think the piece that i have is about eight minutes yeah it's roughly that yeah it's still but long it's, um, and enjoyable it just, but... it just it just works so perfectly and seamlessly and it goes from the finale of the film to the end credits and mm-hmm. it's just awe-inspiring it is it's just gorgeous music it's it's you know, this score is one of the best things that John Williams has ever written. And if he didn't write Star Wars, he's going to win the Academy Award for this anyway. Yeah. I mean, he was nominated for the score. But it's it's, it's just one of his all-time bests. And how many all-time bests does he have? He has dozens and dozens. But yeah. you came up with Star Wars and Close Encounters in the, in the same year. And That's composers out phenomenal. There just wish they could write half of these scores and, and call it just their first score. Yeah. And, and it, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. You're you're at a moment when when John Williams could do no wrong. It was, it was between 1974 and about 1984. That 10 year period is, I think, unmatched in in, in film music history. Yeah, it really is. Um, so, I'd like to. I mean, this is kind of coming down to the end of our episode. I kind of have taken a thought from how you do your endings to your podcast by uh, finishing up by, you know, thanking you. <laughs> I really thank you, Eric, for coming on my show. Uh, was this, this was just, you know, I was feeling giddy because I was so excited to be able to have you on the show. <laughs> Um, it's always fun talking film music so I'd love to come by anytime yeah and uh, I'd like to encourage people that listen to my podcast um, Soundtrack Alley uh, I'd like to you know encourage them to check out your podcast which is Cinematic Sound Radio Um, you've been doing it for 20 years Uh, I really enjoyed the second half of your uh, 20th anniversary oh, and yes. it was just phenomenal and um, but yeah I'd definitely like to thank you and I hope that I can have you on the show again in the near future um, when I have my listeners listen to 
Soundtrack Alley. They can find it on iTunes or on, on Podbean. That's the hosting site that I use. Um, and you can also check out my blog. I, I do a weekly blog, uh, soundtrackalley.net, and it's just a soundtrack a week. And I'm just kind of, this coming Sunday, I think I'm doing, um, what am I doing? I don't remember. <laughs> oh, Robin, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So I'll be, I'll be doing that one. And I just kind of, you know, give links to where you can buy the score and, um, get some, you know, get it from iTunes or wherever. So, uh, those are things that I like to share before, um, playing the queue. Um, it's been a great show having you on here. Um, and so next time, next podcast, I'll be doing Star Wars, A New Hope. So that should be really enjoyable to share with everyone because it's kind of what really got me into soundtracks in a way because my parents took me to uh, Star Wars even though I was a baby and my mom always teases me about the fact that taking me to that film kind of made me love science fiction forever. <laughs> It's it's quite possible. Yeah. I have no idea what you soaked up at that time. No, no. So um, so yeah. Now I'd like to play resolution and end credits and um, have a good evening and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley Spotlight. If you are on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Also, if you want to leave a comment, question, or concern, please email me at soundtrackalley at gmail.com and enjoy looking at my blog at soundtrackalley.com. Thank you.